and uh, find Luke chapter 1. I'll situate it up here. All right, so here we are. Uh, once again, it is, you know, that time of year. Time where we turn our attention to uh, the holiday that is upon us, right? Christmas. And I really appreciated Pastor Aaron as he was praying, uh, following the call to worship this morning. And it just where he, you know, you don't want to beat it to death, but he acknowledges the commercialization of what Christmas has become. And, and so often, if we're not careful, honestly, we can just kind of go right through the season and it'll be January before we know it. And there's been very little serious consideration of the reality of Christmas, right? Of the, the coming of God in the flesh. But we're here nonetheless, and so we want to take advantage of it. We want to make good use of our time. And, and you know, I've, I've probably said to you before, uh, in some way or another, that one of the toughest things about preaching Christmas or Easter, right, is that it can be difficult to not just say the same thing year after year after year. Now, when I say that, don't hear me say that on Easter, we don't want to preach the resurrection, and that on Christmas, or in that Christmas season, we don't want to preach the birth of the Savior. Of course we do, right? But the reality is, if you show up at church, and you know I'm going to say the exact same thing in the exact same way, it's just kind of like, at that point, you're really kind of just going through the motions, and we don't want that, right? We want to engage with God's word. And so one of the challenges is to say, okay, how can we, how can we navigate the Christmas, seat, Christmas season from God's word in a way that maybe could be a little different, that we still understand the realities and the significance of Christmas and Christ and his birth and the word becoming flesh and all of these things, but, but also be challenged maybe in a way that we haven't been before, Last year, you might recall, maybe not, that's okay, that uh, Pastor Aaron preached our Christmas series. I had the privilege in January of taking a master's class, and so I was prepping for that. And so Pastor Aaron did our uh, Christmas series last year. And this year, uh, I'm back. I, I, I love to do this. I'm excited to do this. Um, and I want to, really based on what I just said, really try to approach this from an angle that maybe none of us have before. Um, again, I'm not reinventing the wheel. I'm not changing the birth story or the birth narrative. Uh, but I want to try to engage with it in a way that maybe would be different. And you might have noticed already, whether that be in your bulletin or on the screen, uh, the, the, the series, the insignificance of Christmas. And you've probably had one of two thoughts if you noticed it. Number one, that's a typo in insignificance. Or number two, what is wrong with this guy that he's talking about the insignificance of Christmas? Okay, well, number one, it's not a typo. And number two, I do want to talk about the insignificance of Christmas over the course of the next month. But you notice by now and looking at it, and hopefully with some of the context there, we're using insignificance as a noun. It's a reference to um, in individuals that are a part of this Christmas narrative as we find in, in, in Scripture. And, and honestly, most of them have probably never been preached about, I shouldn't say never, but they don't get the same attention, right? If, if, if you've been in a church where they preached the whole gospel of Luke, they probably talked a little bit about Zechariah, and hopefully so, right? But I want to spend our time this morning really examining a guy that is a, a pretty prominent part of the account of the Christmas narrative who we typically don't regard as such. And so I want to focus on different people or groups of people each week, now until Christmas. And my hope, as we've alluded to, is that we can be challenged by these individuals and in turn, by being challenged, allow our hearts to be prepared to welcome the Savior uh, and on his first advent. Right, when he came. And, 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 and again, I, one of the things, if I could use this phrase, that I have a great disdain for is just the motions. Just doing this for this, because like, that's just what we've done. And there's a lot of things that we do because that's what we've done, and there's purpose and intention, and it's why you do it, and it's, it's proven, right? And, I, and, I, and my fear, if I can be honest with you, is that the, the season such as Christmas is so commercialized, 
I mean, I'm guilty of this if I do not account for my time of sermon prep. I have spent more time shopping already than I have truly considering the advent of Jesus. And I say that to say it is so easy to just get sucked into everything that comes with this season and lose sight and so sometimes me kind of being the way that I'm wired, I say, okay, can we look at this differently to prevent just going through the motion and doing the same things? You and I, honestly, will, I'm not trying to burst anybody's bubbles, but you and I most likely will never be people of prominent significance. Now, our roles are significant, right? Like I have a tremendously significant role as a husband and a father, Right? I have, a, I have a, a role of significance in being one of the pastors at Dale Bible Church. But in the grand scheme of things, on the world stage, even on the state stage, I probably will never be anybody of great, great significance. And most of you won't be either. And that's not to pop your bubble this morning. That's just to say, that's a reality. And so by examining some of these lesser significant people, if we could call them that, from the Christmas narrative... I think we can find some encouragement because God works and is working through all situations and through all people to accomplish his purposes. And that isn't just what we see accounted for in his word. That is true in our lives as well today. And so I want to start our examination of the insignificance of Christmas with an Old Testament priest. The Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew are where we turn our attention when we want to examine the Christmas narrative or the the birth narrative of Christ. And Luke is where we will start our examination together. And Luke's Gospel, it opens uh, just with a simple introduction. And then it turns to the proclamation of a birth, which makes sense, right? Because we're talking about the Christmas narrative. Only this proclamation in the early stages of Luke's gospel of a birth is not about the birth of a Savior. It's about the birth of one who would come before the Savior, John the Baptist. Okay, so I want to turn our attention to Luke chapter 1. I want to start in verse 5 and follow along with me. I'm going to read 20 verses. So it's a big chunk, and then we're going to kind of summarize it together And we're going to look at a couple different passages, and we're going to summarize them together, and we're going to finish with some application, okay? So it'll be a little different than how we normally do it, but hang with me. Let's read Luke 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, or Zacharias, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, <clears throat> excuse me, to take away my reproach among the people. And so I just want to examine, <clears throat> excuse me, the events uh, that we looked at here, this, this individual uh, person of interest, Zechariah. Now there's a number of Zacharias in the pages of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. There's even a minor prophet, um, the, the, the prophet Zechariah, who wrote the, the letter with his name on it, right? And the Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 is none of them, okay? So this is not the same guy that wrote Zechariah in the Old Testament. This is not uh, some of the, the figures that we account by the name of Zechariah in the Old Testament. This is a man who's known as Zechariah, a priest of the Lord, the father of John the Baptist, all right? So this is a different man. We learn a few things about this man. He is a priest of the division of Abijah. And, and we learn here as we read this that it is his unit's turn to serve in the temple. We also gather that he's married to a woman named Elizabeth. They have no children. And Luke tells us that they have no children because, number one, Elizabeth is barren. And number two, because they're old. <clears throat> they're advanced in age. Luke also tells us about these two individuals, not just Zechariah, but his wife as well, that they are righteous before God, that they walked blamelessly before him. Luke also records for us that while Zechariah is tending to his responsibility in the temple, an angel of the Lord appears to him. And all of these details are important. So let's unpack some of the details and specifics of this encounter between Zechariah and the angel Gabriel. Again, Zechariah and his wife would both be regarded as pious people. And that's to say that they valued God's word, they valued what the law taught them, and they sought to live by it. They weren't perfect. To walk with God, to be blameless before him, did not mean that they were perfect, but it did mean that they were not living in violation of any of the clear commands of the law that had been given. A great word that I like to use is integrity. This man and his wife, they lived lives of integrity. They weren't perfect, but they sought to do right before God. Aaron, or Aaron, Zechariah is a priest, and his wife Elizabeth is of the lineage of the first great high priest, Aaron. All right? And so it's quite interesting that these two people would be childless. Because God's word, it goes to great lengths here, Luke does in his recounting of this situation, to, to really tell you all of the reasons that they should have children. They were holy and blameless. They walked with integrity and uprightness before God. They served him in the temple. Uh, Elizabeth was from the family line of Aaron. And a reality that, that we see play out throughout the pages of Scripture, in the first century in this culture, to be childless would be a mark of shame. People would look upon Elizabeth, especially Elizabeth, but Elizabeth and Zechariah and view them as actually being different than how Luke describes them. Well, the reason you don't have children is because you must be in some kind of sin. For some reason, God is judging you. And so there's this, this stigma that would exist in this culture uh, amongst Elizabeth and Zechariah. But we know that they're not living in opposition to God. We know that they're not living outside of what he has declared in his word because they're regarded as righteous people. But it isn't just the, the shame of the, that culture that would come with being childless, but also there's a reality that there's an inheritance and a homestead and all of these things that would be passed on to the firstborn son. And so to not have a son, again, is one of these things that the culture is going to frown upon. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they had nobody to pass on their name or their possessions to. And they carried with that the shame of being barren in this culture. But the events of our text aren't limited just to the circumstances of Zachariah's personal life. We also read about his ministry. He's a priest, and he's of the division of Abijah, and it is that division's turn to serve in the temple. But even within that division, there are not enough responsibilities to be carried out within the temple that they actually have to cast lots 
to see who will go in and carry out the functions within the temple. And the Bible tells us, Luke records, that after casting lots, the lot falls to him, and he is to go into the temple and offer, <clears throat> excuse me, an offering on the altar of incense. Now, at this point, there are literally thousands of priests. And with the exception of the, the three pilgrimage feasts every year where all of the Jews would come to Jerusalem, there is no work for all of these priests. That's why they cast lots, right? And so to be chosen to offer the offering of incense, this was a big deal. Most priests would never be chosen to do this. And if you were chosen, you were never chosen more than once. So to, to, for the lot to fall to you and you to be able to enter into the holy place of the temple with the other priests who would perform their sacrifices, they would do their portion, and then they would step aside, and then the, the offering would be offered the, the, on the altar of incense. And that's what Zechariah would be doing. We might say, as a priest, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Literally. He would never be commissioned to do this for a second time. And this offering that Zechariah would be responsible for was an act whereby the priest would burn incense. And the smoke from the offering of incense would rise up and represent intercessory prayer on behalf of the people. So that's the significance of this, right? We've talked a lot in our, our growth groups throughout the week of Ezra and Nehemiah and the significance of the temple and the altar and what those things signify, the, the presence of God. And this is a very similar to that. This offering that would take place on the altar of incense is signifying to the people that their petitions and their prayers are actually arising and going to the God of the universe who has implored them to offer their prayers. So this is a vital, vital portion of what takes place in the temple and in the offerings. And it is at this time when Zechariah is fulfilling his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, while he's offering up this, this, this prayer of incense for the people, that Luke tells us an angel appears to him and proclaims that his prayer has been heard. This is what we saw in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now, I want to take just a second and, and offer a point of clarification here. There is a lot of debate about what exactly the angel is referring to when he tells Zechariah that his prayers have been heard. And some people say, well, he's referencing the prayers for a child. Because the very next thing he tells Zechariah is that your wife, who's barren, will have a son. Very plausible, okay? But also, we just unpacked, what was Zechariah doing in the temple? He was offering up prayers on behalf of the nation of Israel to God. And you know primarily what one of the things that would be offered on behalf of the nation of Israel was? It was a prayer for a deliverer, for a Messiah, for somebody who would come and would save the nation of Israel. And this angel appears and says, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Now, I want to just jump ahead and, and, and say what's really amazing about how God works and how he orchestrates things according to his time and according to his plan is it doesn't matter which prayer the angel Gabriel is referencing when he tells Zechariah your prayer has been heard because they're both answered. Zechariah, you will have a son, and his name will be called John. And he will be a forerunner to the Messiah, oh, by the way, who's coming too. So God works here in ways that only he can work. But I want to take a, a, a little bit deeper look at this interaction between uh, Zechariah and this angel in, in verse 18. Because, I mean, just imagine the angel has come to Zechariah and he's told him all of these great things. Your prayer's been heard. Your wife is going to have a child. And then he tells him what the child's going to do, right? He's going to be that forerunner to the Messiah. And then in verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Only when Zechariah asked this question of the angel, it wasn't in the manner in which I just asked it. Well, how could I know this? 
angel? How, how could I know that this is the plan? Actually, what we, we know in looking at the Greek is that it's not a question of innocently desiring to know God's plan. It's actually a question of doubt. And I likened it, I told this to Pastor Aaron this week, and I don't have any idea why this is what came to my mind, but I likened this question of John, how shall I know this, to kind of like a, a playground scene at a school where maybe there's a bully, not to equate the angel with a bully, but just track with me, that there's this bully that tells somebody smaller than them that, that they're going to they're gonna take their lunch money, Okay. And, and when he tells this person they're going to take the lunch money, the little kid whose lunch money is going to be taken says, you're not going to take it. And the bully says, and this is how I hear John, or excuse me, Zachariah, asking this question to the angel Gabriel. I, hear, I see the bully saying, oh yeah, what are you going to do about it? That's not, a, that's not a phrase of, really, a child, tell me how. That's a, really, I'm old. And my wife is old. And not only are we old, but she's barren. How are we going to have a kid? That's really the spirit that we see here from Zechariah when God literally sends an angel to stand in his presence and tell him, your prayers have been heard. And we know this to be true because, well, he comes out of the temple deaf, dumb, and mute. As what? As a sign for his unbelief. Or for his doubt, we might say. And this is a question of doubt that Zechariah is communicating. And so the angel, again, he gives them this sign to accommodate his doubt. To be made mute would most, would, would most likely include, not only could he not speak, which we know because it says he signs. And later on in the end of Luke 1, it talks about he writes on a tablet. But it most likely also carried with it the reality that he couldn't hear. He couldn't talk. Andy couldn't, excuse me, Andy couldn't hear. And so this magnificent scene in the temple, it kind of comes to an abrupt close. Luke tells us Zechariah did his job, and then he went home. That's it. Zechariah does his job, and then he goes home. But the story is not over here. However, I want to jump ahead to verse 57 of Luke chapter 1 and see what happens next. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is with him. So it's pretty straightforward. The angel told him, your wife's going to have a baby, and she has. This is where our text picks up. There's some things that have transpired in between. Elizabeth has met her. Uh, Mary, who Mary, of course, is the, 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 the mother of Christ, the Messiah. This makes John the Baptist, as, as Mary and Elizabeth are related, this makes John the Baptist and Jesus actually cousins. And so what we see in verse 57, where we started, is the baby is born, just like the angel said that he would be. And as was the custom, when a baby was born under the old covenant, a baby boy on the eighth day would be taken to the temple and the baby would be circumcised and, and he would be presented there. And so we see all of these people who have gathered with Elizabeth and, and Zechariah to rejoice at their birth. Because remember, she was barren. She lived her whole life with the shame of not being able to have a child. And not only did they not have a child, but they didn't have a, a son. And, and so there's all of these things that carry on with this. And we see it was a big deal. And they go to the temple on the eighth day and the people go with them. But it's interesting because the people say, look, we're going to follow our custom. His name's going to be Zachariah, right? Because that's his dad's name. But instead of naming him according to the customary Jewish practice where a boy is named after his father or at least some member of the family, 
a discussion takes place about what they will name this new baby boy. And Elizabeth continues to tell them that his name will be John. They appeal to the boy's father. His final say would rest with him. And we saw, as we read there, that he says his name will be John. But what's really interesting is in the original language in the Greek, it reads, John is his name. And the emphasis, because John is first, is on John. So when Ze- what really is happening is that Zechariah writes this, John is his name. This is a, a matter of significance and, and the emphasis on the part of Zechariah where no, I mean, think about it, right? My wife was barren, we were old, an angel told me that she'd get pregnant and have a son, and all of these things have come to fruition. And the angel also told me his name will be called John. Pretty reasonable that Zechariah is going to say, John is his name. I've seen all of these things that we never thought possible come to fruition. We are naming this boy John. And when Zechariah lived in obedience to what the angel of the Lord had declared to him, Luke tells us that his tongue was loosed, he was able to speak. And he began praising God. And that's the next, pe- the next portion here of, of, of Luke chapter 1. But I want you to think about something for just a second. It's hard to live in obedience sometimes to God's word. Okay? And imagine the context and the situation in which Zechariah is living under for nine months. I don't know about you. But I know if I thought God was punishing me. For my doubt or unbelief, that would probably not fuel my obedience. But you know what we see from Zechariah? Obedience. That the angel of the Lord had said, this is what's going to happen and this is how it's going to be. And when John, I keep calling him John, sorry. When Zechariah said, oh yeah, how's that going to be? He said, watch, I'm going to show you. But in the meantime, this is how you'll know. Bam. And And he made him mute. And then all of these things come to fruition. And they name the boy John, and he offers these praise to God. And in the praise that Zechariah offers in the end of Luke chapter 1, we go full circle to the moment, nine months prior, where he was standing in the temple, and the angel assured him that his prayers had been heard. Was that prayer for a child? Or was the prayer for a deliverer for Israel? Doesn't matter. Both have been answered. The Messiah is on his way, and your son is a forerunner to him. The Messiah is coming, and your son, John, will go before him, and he will proclaim him and his works. And this is what Zechariah's prophecy, beginning in verse 67, would entail. So Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied. And he talked about in this prophecy, for the sake of time, we won't look at it in its entirety, but he prophesies about who John the Baptist will be and what it is that he will do and why he will do it and then the fact that, that the Messiah is coming. Now, I'm not here this morning to tell you, as often happens in church when we look at a narrative passage, I am not here to tell you this morning, be like Zechariah. The truth is, lots of times, that's what happens when we look at narratives such as this. You say, hey, God did this, and and God did that, so if you want that, be like Zechariah. That's not fair or consistent or honoring to God's word. The point of this passage is not be like Zechariah. The point of the passage of Luke chapter 1 is that God was fulfilling his covenant with Abraham by sending the Messiah through his descendants that Zechariah was praying for. So it's not go be like Zechariah. It's, well, if we could just make one blanket, it would be trust that God is faithful to his promises. It had been thousands of years since he made covenant with Abraham. It had been 400 years since any prophet had spoke on behalf of God. The time in between our Old Testament and our New Testament, we call it the 400 silent years. Because there were no prophets who spoke on behalf of God. But here is God now demonstrating I'm fulfilling my promises. I'm upholding the covenant that I made from, uh, with Abraham. And so as we're not saying, hey, 
be like Zechariah, we can learn from what transpires here. And so I want to close this morning with five matters or five, we could just call them applications that we observe from this narrative, okay, of, an insig- of a seemingly insignificant man and God working through him to advance his purposes. First of all, remember just this or just that. God uses ordinary, insignificant people to accomplish his purposes. You're not special, and that's okay. You don't have to be special, right? Because, you know, does God use special people? Sure, but it's not a requirement. God uses ordinary people like you and like me. He uses people who are available. He uses people who desire to be used by God who desire to see the glory of God manifest in the world that we live in, right? That's what happened there after the baby was born. After the baby was born and they go to the temple, it says, and fear came on all their neighbors. This seemingly insignificant man, Zachariah, who was old, whose wife was old and she was barren, she gives birth. He goes from being mute to prophesying about the greatness of the Messiah that is coming And in the midst of all of that, it says, those who were there, those who saw what happened, those who heard what happened, they were amazed. It says, fear fell upon them. God uses ordinary, insignificant people. Zachariah is not the hero of the Christmas account. The Savior is. But God uses Zachariah to demonstrate that he fulfills his promises through ordinary people. Secondly, I want you to understand something this morning. Participating in religious activity does not mean that you are walking with God. Zechariah was a priest who had the highest of honors going into the holy places of the temple and offering incense. And when God, through an angel, told Zechariah, I'm going to do something magnificent, the priest said, yeah, right. You can do all the religious activity in the world, and it doesn't mean you're right with God. Your heart can be far from the God of Scripture while seemingly to be going through the motions of being in step with the God of Scripture. Now we know Zechariah was righteous before the Lord. He was regarded as as blameless. But it's very clear that you can go through all the motions. You can fulfill all of your functions and still doubt God. Doubt is the fruit of a wavering belief. Doubt is the fruit of a wavering belief. That's why when Eve was tempted in the garden, the serpent said to her, did God really say? What did he do? He planted a seed of doubt. And that seed of doubt for Eve became unbelief. God's lying. He's withholding something good from us by not letting us eat the fruit of that tree. And because he's lying, I'm going to eat the fruit that he told us not to eat because he doesn't want us to be like him. When in his goodness, he said, don't eat the fruit because when you do, you will die. Doubt is the fruit of wavering belief. Now hear me when I say this though, because I'm not saying that if you doubt things or you have questions, that you automatically reject you know, something or that you or that you don't believe in what you may encounter with God's word. But I have zero problems telling you, if you don't seek out, if if you have doubts, you do. I don't know who, okay? I'm not a prophet. I'm not a genius. There's enough people in this room to know that there are doubts about God's word represented here. You maybe have never said them out loud. You maybe never told them to anybody. But the reality is, 
right? You believe by faith. And so when things can be hard to reconcile, it can produce doubt. Here's what I want you to understand. It is never wrong to ask questions. It is not even wrong, I would submit, to, to, to have a level of doubt of saying, I don't know how to reconcile this. I'm not sure what to do with this. Here's where doubt becomes an issue. When you don't seek answers to your doubt. Doubt left unchecked becomes unbelief. You know what's really popular in the world we live in right now? The, the church culture we live in is deconstruction stories. We've literally made abandoning faith in Christ something to be identified and then to be identified with and by. Literally, people who have claimed to have faith in God for years and years and years, and many of whom have written books, who have pastored churches, who have done tons of great things for the cause of Christ. And then one day you find out on Instagram they had a crisis of faith and they've left the church and X, Y, Z and ABC. And the thing that always amazes me is the absolute common denominator of all of them is it begins with doubt. And doubt left unchecked becomes unbelief. And here's the other thing. When I say seek out answers when you have doubt, it doesn't mean you ask your friend who you know has the same doubt. That's not seeking out an answer. Right? That's seeking out somebody to encourage you in your doubt. And so if we have doubts, like we've been talking in in our our 9 a.m. equip class up here about Genesis and the creation account. A lot of people have doubts about creation. Okay. Do you consult God's word or do you just read all of the theories and hypotheses that pertain to evolution and say, oh yeah, that makes sense to me. I don't believe the Bible anymore because it couldn't be true. That's literally what happens. That's literally what people are doing. We're not reconciling. We, we, we have this notion in our world that God has the responsibility to prove to us the irony is, when you look into his word, that's exactly what he does. But the onus isn't on him, because he's already proven his existence. He's already proven his goodness. You hear? You got breath in your lungs? You're functioning? God has created. Everything that exists is not a product of chance. And so I just say all of that to say, some of you are doubting, and that's, not, or that's, that, that's okay. That's not the end of the world. But don't allow your doubt to become unbelief because you don't seek out answers from God's word. And I will say from God's word. And somebody might say, well, if you seek out the answers in God's word, well, isn't that biased? No, it's the answers. And what you find with doubt is if you seek out the answers to your doubt questions from God's word, your doubt dissipates. Why would I ever tell anybody to read a self-help book? Read the Bible, right? Seek answers to your doubts from God's word. The chances of an angel causing you or I to become mute for the purpose of a sign are slim to none. So if we doubt, we must seek out answers to those doubts. Or doubts left unchecked always become unbelief. Thirdly, just because we do walk with Christ, it does not mean that life will be easy or the way that we want it. I think this is one of the primary things that causes doubt in the lives of people. If God is good and God is love and he has love for me, then why am I going through this? Why do I have this physical ailment? Why did I get a cancer diagnosis? Why did I lose a loved one? Why, is, why are things so difficult? Why did I lose my job? Why can't I pay my bills? And I'm not making light of any of those situations. Is never my intent to do that, but it is a reality that people who walk with Christ encounter all of those situations I just named. And just because you walk with Christ doesn't mean that things will be easy. Zachariah and Elizabeth, they had no children, specifically no son. And this reproach would be a very difficult reproach for Elizabeth to bear. And as she got older, You can imagine every day that passed, every day she got a little bit older, her faith and hope that she would one day have a child waned. And with 
the loss of hope that you'll one day have a child comes the increase of the reality that you're going to live your whole life with the shame and the reproach of not having a child. There is no doubt some things in the lives of the people in this room this morning, many of you desire they would be different. There's no doubt. And some of you here this morning, I'm not, you know, I don't want nobody to raise their hands. I don't want, but some of y'all are hurting. Some of y'all are, are going through things that we don't even know about. Other people in this room, they don't even know about. And you're trying to navigate a difficult situation. It could be your marriage. It could be your finances, right? It's tough right now, right? It, it, it could be a situation with your kids. It could be a situation with your job. And you're navigating all these things and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know how to do this. And, you know, I'm trying to do it right. You know, I, I've been going to church, and I, I go to Bible study, and I'm, and I'm reading my Bible, and I'm praying, and I'm doing all of these things that God's Word says those who love Jesus do. And yet I got all this calamity in my life. I just want it to be different. I just want you to know, though I can't do anything to change the circumstances of your life, I can tell you that if you're walking with Christ, he is not aloof to your situation and your circumstances. He's not deaf or blind to them. He's not immune. He's not unaware. You know, one of the realities of God's word is we don't always understand how God works and why God works the way <clears throat> that he does. But God's word tells us that in every situation, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he is at work for their good. You know, it might seem, you know, like I said, not trying to minimize anything, it might seem minuscule, but maybe, maybe that job you're afraid of losing, you need to lose. Maybe it's got a hold on you in terms of a priority that it's not healthy for you and your family. And, it, and as sure as you say here today, you think, I don't know how it could ever function without this job. But God knows. So things may not be the way that we want them to be, but God has not abandoned us because our circumstances or our situations are difficult. And as we pray about the situations of our lives, we're to be people who pray with expectant hearts. See, the Bible tells us Zechariah was praying, but I don't think he really expected God to act in the way in which he was praying. Because when the angel came and said, I'm getting ready to do what you're praying for, he didn't believe him. That's too hard for God. God can't give my old wife a son. God can't do those things. God can't work out the, the, the realities of my life if I lose this job. God can't heal my marriage because it's broken beyond repair. Now, when you pray, and again, I have to be careful because I'm not promoting a prosperity gospel. I'm not telling you that if you pray hard enough and you have enough faith and you give enough that God's going to richly bless your life. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. But because God's word is true and because God is faithful, I want you to know he can heal your marriage. He can provide a new job for you to sustain the income that you lose. I don't know what the situation is, but none of it is beyond the ability of God. And so as we pray, we pray expecting. I told Aaron this week, man, I, there's, there's words that we use that have been hijacked in, in church culture, right? They almost are like a, a, a taboo. And so are we praying that God would intervene in our lives? Are we, are we praying, believing that he will work in our situations? Because if we're not praying with expectant hearts, when he does intervene, we won't notice. Are we praying with expectant hearts? And here's the fourth thing I want to give you. We talk about God intervening. That's the taboo word, by the way, is that when God intervenes, it's usually not convenient. Now, I talk about a word like intervene being hijacked in the culture we live in today. Like, oh, God's going to intervene, and he's got a blessing for you, and he's got to, like, look, I'm just telling you, here's the reality of it. We see all throughout the pages of Scripture and all through the lives of God's people, that God intervenes in the life of people. 
But it doesn't always look like a financial blessing. That's what the TV will tell you. It doesn't always look like a, a financial blessing. I literally saw something the other day where they were like, this flyer was going around and said, if you'll sow a seed of $300, then we'll send you this prayer cloth, this, this prayer necklace, and all these other things. But here's what's interesting about that seed of faith that you were to sow. They weren't calling you to go to your neighbor and give them $300 to help pay their grocery bill. They wanted you to send it to them. They want, oh, you, if you do this, man, God's going to intervene in your life. He don't work that way. If there was ever somebody who God should intervene into their life, would it have not have been Zachariah and Elizabeth? I mean, they're both, he's a priest. She's from the, the, the lineage of the first great high priest, Aaron. They walked upright before God, and yet they're old with no kids. And they're like, come on, God, intervene. We've been sowing seeds. The reality is that when he does intervene, it usually is not convenient. Because, I mean, I think, like, even from beside the fact that he was fulfilling prophecy and Elizabeth getting pregnant and having a baby, like, dude, having a baby is hard. And I don't mean physically, although that's true. But I just mean, like, raising a baby is hard. And now you got these two old folks here who are doing it because now they've been given a baby. The truth is, as much as they had prayed for a, a son, prayed for a baby, it wasn't convenient to have one now. And yet that's when God saw fit. I want you to know, when God grows your character, it's usually through difficulty. Your character doesn't grow when everything's going the way you want it. When he increases our patience, it's through high-intensity situations. When he increases our faith, it's usually when it seems like there's no hope. The situation is gone. It's lost. No chance. But when God intervenes in those circumstances of our lives that aren't great in those moments and in those seasons, when he intervenes, we know, we recognize, it increases our character, our patience, our faith. But lastly, I want you to understand, God will use you and your situation for his glory. The circumstances of the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth were not great culturally. They were devout people who everyone believed were being judged by God, and the proof was her barrenness. As we've already touched on, how magnificent was it when the people found out Elizabeth was pregnant, and then when John was born? Luke records that just as the angel told Zechariah, the people rejoiced, the joy was great, and that rejoicing was exceeding, exceedingly rejoicing. A situation that was bleak became a situation where God was praised. And Zechariah received his ability to speak and immediately praises God and points people to the fact that the Messiah was coming. And so I would just ask you quickly this morning, does your life point people to the Messiah? You could say, does your life point people to the fact that the Messiah is coming because he is coming again? Our lives ought to demonstrate that we believe this to be true. And if we do, we point people to him and he works through us for his glory. But he does this in good situations and difficult ones. Zechariah was a, a man of seeming insignificance. And honestly, our lives will probably fit right underneath that banner too. But God can use us, and God desires to use us. When God intervenes, it's usually not convenient. And I want to take just a second as we think about, and I know we're short on time, and I'm sorry for that. But when God intervenes, number one, it's for our good. And number two, as we've noted, it's usually not convenient. And I just want to challenge you this morning because I absolutely believe that the greatest demonstration of God intervening in our lives is the intervention into our lives for salvation. And the truth is, some of you may be hurting and may be struggling and may be thinking about God intervening in his difficult or in the difficult situation that you're in, and it may be a product of your own doing. It may be that you have made a mess of things, that things have been difficult, that you've not walked with Christ, that you've, maybe you knew but you walked away, maybe you've abandoned, maybe you've never heard. 
Maybe today is the first time that you heard that God takes broken people and makes them whole, that he intervenes in their lives according to his grace and his mercy, and he heals, he makes alive dead people. Because that's what everyone apart from Christ is. If Christ has not intervened in your life, first and foremost, primarily for salvation, the Bible would regard you as dead. You're dead and you're separated from God. And that greatest act of intervention into the lives of people is salvation. And it has to start there. And you know, the crazy thing is, oftentimes, God brings about our salvation through difficult circumstances and situations that we, maybe we have found ourselves in because of our choices, or maybe just because it's how life has unfolded. But as you think this morning about God using you and using your situation for his glory and God intervening in your life and and all of these things that we've talked about this morning, I want to make sure that you leave here not wondering, has God intervened in my life? I was reading a devotion yesterday, I believe it was, and in this, this just a little small devotion I was reading, this guy was talking about when Jesus healed the man who had been uh, paralyzed his whole life, 38 years old, and he was laying uh, next to the pool of, of Shiloh. It was literally a healing pool where the Jews believed that every so often the current would get stirred up and everything would get spinning. And if you and your infirmities could get somebody to put you in the pool, that it would heal you. And so this lame man laid next to the pool, and for 38 years, when the water would get stirred up, somebody else would get in. And he never got to get into the, the pool and to be healed of his physical infirmity. But what's really interesting is one day Jesus passes by this man at the pool of Siloam in his lame state. And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, I want you to heal me. Some of you here this morning need to be healed, but you won't ask. You don't get healed by doing religious activity. God isn't intervening in your life because you come to church per se. Sometimes we gather around God's people and we gather around God's word and we're never truly healed. We're never truly made right with God because we just assume that laying next to the pool is sufficient. Jesus said to the lame man, what do you want me to do for you? He literally said, and this isn't the only time Jesus did this. He healed a blind man the same way. The reality this morning is that some of us may need to ask God to heal us. We may need him to intervene in our lives. And it's worth the point where we're like, yep, okay, I understand. I hear what's being said. I know what God's word's saying. I'm a sinner separated from God. I'm dead in my sin, spiritually dead, and I need to be made alive. But just being around spiritual people and participating in spiritual things don't make me alive. So God, I need you to make me alive. I still, I mean, I I still remember like it was forever ago. In October, my youngest daughter trusted Christ, six years old. And when she prayed and we said to her, I said, baby, daddy's going to pray for you. And then I want you to pray. I didn't ask her to pray after me. I didn't ask her to repeat what I said. I said, dad's going to pray for you. And then I want you to pray. And her prayer, and you guys know Jojo, she's a million miles an hour. But in this moment, she was crying. Everybody was crying. It was a big ordeal. And she's sitting there in my lap in the lawn chair. And she's doing one of these. And all she could get out was God I know you're the only one who can save me from my sins, so will you save me from my sins? She had to ask. You gotta ask. God knows the desire of your heart, but when you're right there, when you're at the precipice, this moment of God intervening in your life for salvation, it doesn't happen until you acknowledge that you need him to do it. And so some of us today may need to ask for God to intervene in our lives. It won't make us significant. It won't make us people of notoriety, but it will mean that God will grow us and he will use us and he will be glorified from it. We'll be insignificant just like Zachariah in the grand scheme of things, but we can point people to the one who is significant. My question for you this morning is, do you?